Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Scars are celebrated. They're proof that you live through something and they're more beautiful. And I love that idea. And somewhere in there, I don't know if it was in my 20s, 30s, 40s, but somewhere in there I realized, you know what? I'm not hiding any of this crap anymore. And that weight went away. It took me a couple books to get there. But I realized looking back, you know, those scars are still there. I still worry with every book we put out. Like, you know, we're talking because we're in the middle of a book launch and I'm still like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna lose it all. And I still have my bar membership that I pay those renewal dues every year for 20 plus years now because I'm terrified if it all goes away and I need to practice law, what am I gonna do? Coming up, the journey of prolific New York Times best-selling novelist, historian, comic book hero, and TV personality Brad Meltzer. His latest book, I Am Anne Frank, is perhaps his most important work to date. Stay with us. Full Disclosure airs on NPR One, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Joining me is the person whose picture shows up when you Google bestseller, Brad Meltzer. Too many novels and TV projects to list here with any brevity, but I'll tell you that his illustrated children's books, including I Am Amelia Earhart and I Am Abraham Lincoln, inspire children the world over, including my own munchkins. Uh, The next in the series, I Am Benjamin Franklin, and perhaps Brad's most important book, I Am Anne Frank Hit. He is an esteemed graduate of North Miami Beach High School and was also born on April Fool's. Did I miss anything, sir? The most important part is that we went to the same high school. I, that was, I was excited for this interview more than anything just to hear that as part of my intro. Oh, gosh. We share a birthday. And you know who else went to the same high school? Is I, you know, I, I sit in the cheap seats, but there's Cheryl Sandberg uh, from Facebook. Well, Cheryl and, um, just, didn't you see? Cheryl just blasted out I Am Am Frank for us. That's beautiful. And uh, the MAGA bomber, uh, who's in prison. I don't think he's going to be blasting this out. But I digress, as I normally do, sir. Uh, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad that you actually were able to take uh, the good and the bad from our high school in one sentence. That was really nice. Well done. I, I have to ask you this. So, you know, you went to law school, and I looked back at the speech that you gave at your undergrad alma mater, University of Michigan, on encouraging people to look at the experience after college as not as an escalator, and I need to rise up the ranks and play the game or whatever the metaphor is, but uh, jump off, take a leap of faith. And and you did that even after going to law school and being an illustrious law school grad. Uh, you went to a great law school in Columbia Law. You were on the Law Review, but you managed to find your passion and not bill hours for the rest of your life. Tell me about that. Yeah, you know, I think and what, what that speech, that commencement address I gave at Michigan was really about is the, the hardest thing in life. And the hardest thing in life is admitting what you love. And the truth was, is I was, I went to law school out of fear because when I moved to North Miami Beach, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And when my dad was 39 years old, he lost his job. And he called it at the time, the do-over of life, as if it was a fun game. The truth was, it was terrifying because he had no money, he had $1,200 to his name. He had no job, we had no place to live. He picked everything up and he moved us to Florida on a lark because my grandmother lived there, like everyone's Mm -hmm. grandmother. And it wasn't just one of those times where we were kind of like scared of, oh, we don't have money, but we were, it, was a, it was a moment we were scared about safety. Like we didn't know where we were gonna live. We lived with my grandmother actually for, for months on end because we couldn't afford even a down payment for an apartment. And I gave a fake address so I could go to my middle school. I never could have possibly gone to NMB or, or, or Highland Oaks. I gave a fake address of someone so that I could go to the better school. Um, I, where we lived, we just wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to, to, to go to that school because I was in a worse neighborhood. And 
I, money was really, really hard on my family, really hard. And the truth was, is I didn't want my dad's life. I was terrified of having that. I was terrified, and still to this day, I say this, but in the past, my wife knows I always speak about it in the present tense, is it is still what haunts me. My biggest moment is coming home from school and seeing my dad at three o'clock and sitting in a chair. And you know when your dad's home in the middle of the day, something's wrong and him saying, I got fired. Um, I always still to this day believe you can lose everything in a moment. And because I did, I lost everything in a moment. And I went to law school solely because I just, um, I was terrified to have that. I needed something to fall back on because my dad was bad with money and he never had anything to fall back on. And what really happened was, is right before I went to law school, a guy named Eli Siegel, said to me, became my mentor and said, listen, I want to be your mentor. You, you know, I love the way you hustle for everything. And you remind me of me. I grew up also in Brooklyn and I want to take you under my wing. Don't go to law school. He said to me, come work here, work for me. It'll, if you love it, you, you'll have some money in your pocket. And if you hate it, you can leave after a year and you'll have money in your pocket. Either way, you know, you, you get a good year and you can pay off. I was in debt from college at Michigan. You can pay off your loans and everything else. And I thought that's a good deal. So I move all my stuff to Boston. I move everything to Boston. And the week I get to Boston, he leaves the job. And and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've wrecked my life. And so Robin, I did what all of us do in situations where we think we wrecked our lives. What every one of us would do is I said, I'm gonna write a novel. I was like, that seems like the logical thing. And I started my first novel. Uh, my first novel got me 24 rejection letters. There were only 22 publishers at the time. I got 24 rejection letters. Um, but I, that was the moment where I figured out and finally found what I truly loved, and it was to write. And I said, if they don't like that book, I'm going to write another. And if they don't like that book, I'm going to write another. But I went to law school because I just didn't have the money to kind of write on the side and have my parents pay for it. I went to law school because, I, as I said, I was terrified to have my dad's life in case everything didn't work out and it all went away. What were you doing to make ends meet between kind of debt from University of Michigan and and the bohemian lifestyle and writing and law school debt and everything else, if I could ask you? Yeah, no, I I stayed at the job where Eli hired me. I could never afford to leave it. So I was actually working in marketing at Games Magazine, selling classified ads. Games Magazine is a puzzling gaming magazine. If you know the magazine, you have a high IQ because it was for people with high IQs at the time. You know, it just was like one of those puzzles in gaming magazines. And uh, I sold classified ads. That was what I did to make ends meet. Um, and I, in fact, I kept the job throughout law school because it would help me pay for law school. They were kind enough. They knew I needed the money. Um, but even in college, I would sell T-shirts. One of my favorite things I ever did, and you will appreciate this, is when we went to college, it was the year The Simpsons launched. And mm-hmm. um, and everyone, of course, knows The Simpsons now. But back then, no one knew what it was. I knew it from the Tracy Ullman um, Spike and Mike Festival before Tracy Ullman put it on the air. And the first episode aired and I turned to my buddy and who was an artist and I said, this thing's gonna be big. We should make t-shirts on it. And we made, as far as I know, I spoke to actually Bill Morrison who works with Matt Groening. Um, as far as we can date, we made the first ever bootleg t-shirts in history. And we literally taped it off the first episode. <laughs> I, I ran off 300 t-shirts. We sold 300 t-shirts in two hours. I ran off another 300 t-shirts. And I would, here I was, a kid now from Miami in, at the University of Michigan. I would walk into the Ann Arbor Bank with basically like $10,000 cash. I didn't, even have a, I didn't even have a bank account. I was like, can I deposit They For sure, with a Miami driver's license, I thought I was a drug dealer. Right. And, uh, and that was how I paid for college and, and for law school is just, you know, is, is in sales. 
Your first novel, as you said, received 24 rejection letters. Uh, you told the audience at the University of Michigan when you were giving the commencement address that you took a step back and realized that your favorite class at law school taught the inner workings of the U.S. Supreme Court. Ergo, your second novel, The Tenth Justice. Give me the backstory. Yeah, so I'm sitting in my first year of law school daydreaming because that's what I always, anywhere I am is what I'm doing. Um, and... I remember in that first semester, I was literally in the back of class, the professor said something about how the Supreme Court had 27-year-old clerks that helped write the decisions as they came down to the public. And I remember in the back, I, I literally wrote, they gave us this free little notepad that we could take. It was like a calendar before there were even Palm Pilots. And I wrote in the back, Supreme Court, and I wrote the word clerk, and I circled it, and I wrote book idea on the top. And after I got my 23rd and 24th rejection letter, a week later, I was working in Washington, D.C. at the time. Eli had brought me on, even though he had left the company a year later, he had brought me on as a speechwriter for AmeriCorps, the national service program. And uh, I said, I called up, I was like, I'm going to write a book about the Supreme Court. I called up the Supreme Court at the time. I was like, hey, I'd love to come in and see it. And let's just say that's not how you get into the Supreme Court. Um, and so I, I actually, at AmeriCorps, I called back, same number, the marshal's office who does security. And I said, hey, you know, I'm calling from AmeriCorps, the National Service Program. We have a bunch of interns who would love to come down and get a tour. Can you give them a tour? And they said, oh, sure. What are their names? And I said, his name is Brad Meltzer. He'll be coming alone. And that is literally how I got past the crack security that was guarding our nation's highest court. Um, they showed me around. They took me in. And... Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's daughter was actually one of my professors. And so I got some wow. kindness there and got some uh, help there. And the week after I got my 23rd and 24th rejection letter, I started a book called The 10th Justice that became my first novel. Um, and I'll be the first to say uh, it was the one that sold. Uh, the first one that still never sold to this day sits on my shelf, published by Kinko's. But it was the second novel that I, I, got, <laughs> I, I got lucky. I'm the first to say it. I got lucky, right? It takes one person, Robin, you know, to sometimes change your life. You just got to get one person to say yes. And we were lucky enough to find that person who took a chance on me. And the crazy part was at the time, it's funnier now than it was then, but the guy who bought the book, and again, I was getting rejection letters and there was this guy, an editor named Rob Weisbach, and he had found a guy named Jerry Seinfeld and published his book before he was Jerry Seinfeld. Then he did the same thing with a guy named Paul Reiser. Then he did the same thing with a woman named Ellen DeGeneres. And then he picked my fictional novel, his first ever fiction book. And I remember being in his office and going, what the hell am I doing here? Like I'm out of my league and it'll never work. And the truth was, it was supposed to be just a tiny little book. Um, but because he was such a big editor, and this is the part I never get to tell, but he, um, he left the job also. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, uh, what do I do now? I don't have an editor and he left the job. And I thought, oh, they'll give me a new editor. The publisher that I was at at the time uh, was Bantam Books. And Bantam said to me back then, they would not return our phone calls. And they basically said to us, if you publish this book with us, we're going to bury it. We don't like it. The guy, Rob, liked it, but we don't like this book. We think it's crap. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm dead. Again, I watched right there what I said to you at the start. My whole life cratered in one day. It was all gone. Everything I thought I had was gone. And I left the publishing house and actually went with Rob. I actually made the jump to his new company. We were supposed to be like the second or third book that was published. And here's what changed my life is Paul Reiser was supposed to be the first book of this brand new imprint that Rob was doing. 
he was going to be, it was a follow-up member, Mad About You was on at the time, and he sure. was doing his follow-up book called Babyhood. He had done this book called Couplehood, and it was going to be a massive number one bestseller. And God knows what reason, but Paul Reiser decides that he is going to delay his book because he wants it to like coincide with sweeps or something like that. I don't know what it was. And Rob had no other book that was ready to launch his imprint, but the imprint was launching. It was launching no matter what, you got to go. And the only book that was ready was mine. So the story became, my editor was 29 years old, I was 27 years old, and the story became, what, is, what are two 20-year-olds suddenly doing trying to take on all of publishing? And the New York Times did a big story and it changed my life. And suddenly this tiny little book that was supposed to be a nothing throwaway got all this undeserved attention. Um, and, and that was the start of my career. You told the graduating Wolverines, you graduated from Michigan in 92. You told them in 2016 at commencement, at your 10-year reunion, I want you to be in that group that loves their work. You said the key to doing so requires the greatest risk you'll ever take in your life, admitting what you want. While it might sound simple, you told them, you warned that the pressure to conform and to keep pace with others' career trajectories can make the journey difficult. And we meet so many people who did go through the ringer, went to law school, build hours, clerked and everything, and realized they maybe at age 40 or at age 45, they want to make a hard turn into teaching. And I look back at my 20s, and when I think about your body of work and your empathy and your candor, um, I just was not nowhere near as resilient as, as you were at the age of 22, 23. I was terrified of failure. I was terrified of being off the track of my classmates hearing, oh, what is he doing? He lost his job at a brokerage firm or he's bouncing around. He's shopping a novel. You're out there telling people, which I learned belatedly, that no one should care and you shouldn't care. This is the time, the only time in your life, really, that you know, you're not going to be encumbered by family, by other things. You should be taking these calculated risks. And listen, I wish I was so brave. It was easy to give that speech when I was 45 years old. Um, I think the only reason I had the resilience in my 20s is because I had my ass kicked in my teens. That was it. I mean, I saw utter failure like as, as almost as low as it can go beyond someone being murdered. I mean, it was, I mean, my wife will tell you, I, I, it is my permanent scar. I know it's my permanent scar. I wear it proudly and I, and you know, there's this, I used to be embarrassed of it and wouldn't talk about it. You look at my first interviews for the 10th justice, I won't say a word about anything in my past. I, I'm literally just giving baseball quotes, like I'm gonna take it one day at a time. I hope people like this book. I'm just so happy to be here. And it was because I was, I was like terrified to not project something that was perfect. And then somewhere, I don't know if it's maturity or anything else, I just realized, you know, there's in France, in America, we hate scars, right? We want a plastic surgeon, especially in Miami, to get rid of them. But in France, scars are celebrated. They're proof that you live through something and they're more beautiful. And I love that idea. And somewhere in there, I don't know if it was in my 20s, 30s, 40s, but somewhere in there, I realized, you know what? I'm not hiding any of this crap anymore. And that weight went away. It took me a couple books to get there. But I realized looking back, you know, those scars are still there. I still worry with every book we put out. Like, you know, we're talking because we're in the middle of a book launch and I'm still like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna lose it all. And I still have my bar membership that I pay those renewal dues every year for 20 plus years now because I'm terrified if it all goes away and I need to practice law, what am I gonna do? Because I know the moment, you know, and, and maybe this is the best story I can tell you for it. This is true is every day that I sit down to write, this'll be the most revealing way I can tell you about myself. So the 23rd and 24th rejection letter that I got on that mm. first book, those were supposed to be acceptance letters in my head. My, I actually, I got 22 rejections. The 23rd and 24th were two people that actually said, we like your book 
and we want to even meet with you. Tell us more about it. We want to see what you're like. And I went to New York and, and had meetings with them. And it was a big deal to me. It was meetings with like grownups. And my editor at the time said to me, they're going to, they love the book. They're going to bid on it. We're going to have a bidding situation and we're going to make you a lot of money right now. So I was like, wow, I was in all this debt. I was like, great, call me and tell me. And my editor told me, you know, stay by your phone. Cause back in the day, there were no cell phones. You had to like wait by the phone. She told right. me what time to be there. And I got by the phone at whatever time it was. And, um, and I, I waited by the phone for it to ring, expecting when I picked it up for her to tell me, you know, we made this much money, you're going to get out of debt. And I picked up the phone all excited. And, and as I brought it to my ear, I said, hello. And she said, sorry, kiddo. And my heart sank in my chest. And it was devastating, all gone. The 23 and 24 were all the rejections. Neither of them wanted it. And I'll tell you this, Robin, that every day for 20 plus years now, before I sit down the route, we all have our rituals. My, one of my rituals is this, is I replay that moment in my head. I replay where I was, what, what kind of phone I was holding in my hand. It was one of those see-through phones where you could see the wires inside, like that was high tech at the time. I, re I picture the Formica desk on my left from like the door store. On my right is a, a bed and a box spring, no, you know, no headboard or anything fancy because we didn't have it. I look out over the terrace that we were in in Washington, D.C., the parking lot, and on my left is a fire station. And I count the doors of the fire station, one, two, three in my head, and then I say those words to myself, sorry, kiddo. And I, I redo it for 20 years now because I never ever want to be thankless for what I have. I never ever want to be anything but as hungry as I was when I was 24 years old. And I never ever want to think I made it because the moment I think I made it, I'm finished. And for 20 years now, every single day I sit down to write, I say it, sorry kiddo, sorry kiddo, sorry kiddo. That is what I do and, and it, is, it, it is the thing I need. Brings to mind my favorite song lyric by Nada Surf. Uh, Maybe this weight was a gift, like I had to see what I could lift, uh, which was Ooh, uh, very near and dear to I'm my heart. I'm stealing that I, right now. Hold on, I gotta write that down. That is a plus. And it was in Hold fact on. the last the last line in my book. Maybe this weight was a gift. It took me a while. You know, this is not about me, but like you, later in life, especially after becoming a father, I've learned to cherish my difficulties and my traumas, and they make me unique. And you never know what the other people with the cushy jobs and the you know second and third houses and hedge funds are enduring at home in the shadow and the persona. But I would like to know, Brad Meltzer, what that first call was when you learned that you were on the bestseller list ha. as an obverse, as an antidote to the sorry kiddo. Oh, gosh, I remember where I was standing. I was in North Miami Beach in my girlfriend's house, now my wife. And um, and we had just gotten, God, I love you for bringing me back. I feel like I'm in the Wayback Machine now. So we had just gotten, um, the week the book came out, these absurd reviews, Vanity Fair, Time Magazine, USA Today. I mean, it was it was absurd. I was like, well, I can't believe people are writing these nice things about this book that I worked on. And... I remember back day there were no phone, no phones again, fax machines. So they, they said, "Stand by your fax. We have something to send you." I didn't even know. You know, again, I grew up in a house. There were no books. There were comic books because I read comics, but there were no books in my house. Sure. My parents, my parents, may both of them rest in peace, read seven books in their lives. The seven that I wrote before they died. Like they did not read books. 
So I didn't even really know what the bestseller list was. I didn't know what, you know, I had no idea what any of these things were that I was kind of like, like I was like walking and rendering through this publishing world at the same time. And they told me, go buy your fax machine. And, And I put on the fax machine and they sent me this thing called the bestseller list. And there we were on it at number eight. And wow. I turned to my wife and I literally looked at her and I said, let the backlash begin. I knew exactly in that moment what was gonna happen. I knew it because I know what happens all the time in history is like America loves to lift things up, but the moment it gets lifted up, you know what we love to do even more is swat it down. And I'm not joking, a week later, Entertainment Weekly published a review on the same book that everyone had universally said was, you know, this incredible new voice, blah, 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 nonsense, nonsense, and said, and gave me a D plus, not even a B plus, a D like David plus, and just tore me apart ruthlessly. And so, you know, and to me, it was like, okay, it was like the universe's way of balancing things out. But I will never forget that moment of sitting there and looking at my name. And I firmly believe to this day that getting a good review doesn't mean you're great. And, and you have to then, of course, accept that uh, getting a bad review doesn't mean you're horrible. My, my agent once said to me at the very start, um, she said, you know, I look on, and this was back in the day, Amazon had just launched and they flew me to Amazon's headquarters at the time. And Amazon said to me in 1997, they said, we have this thing on our books where you can write a review right after, right underneath where the book is listed. And they said, you don't sell the most books for us. There are authors who outsell you by like tens of millions of thousands, like, you know, crazy bajillion numbers. They said, but you, for some reason, have more reviews than anybody else. And they handed me a folder that was like, you know, a half inch thick of printed out back then reviews. And and the thing was, is you, why? Because I was 27 years old and 27 year olds are the early adapters of technology. So they were the first ones on Amazon who figured out how to write reviews. And it was literally like there would be a half a dozen reviews saying I was the most horrible writer to ever approach literature, followed by a half a dozen that would say that I wrote the greatest new book of a new generation, followed by another half dozen that would say, no, he's ruined literature as we know it, and so on, add forever. And I learned in that first year um, that whatever the review goes up first will be fought back within minutes. I watched it again in real time at hyperspeed. So I've never really thought, you know, any of those things truly matter, but I'll never forget that moment when they actually said you get to be on the bestseller list. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Brad Meltzer. Uh, In addition to his uh, many works of of fiction, his novels. He's one of the only authors to ever have books on the bestseller list for nonfiction, advice, children's books, and even comics books. Uh, You should associate him with Xavier Riddle and the Secret Museum, the TV series based on your books. You've uh, JV'd with Chris Eliopoulos. Uh, That can be seen on PBS Kids. You're also the host of Brad Meltzer's Lost History and Brad Meltzer's Decoded on the History Channel. And in addition to that, The Hollywood Reporter pegged you as one of Hollywood's 25 most powerful authors. So coming out of that euphoria and that facts, you go on over 20 years to really parlay this into becoming a multimedia guru. I guess you were voracious in seeking out collaborations, in being, I think it's been called creatively promiscuous, right? Doing children's books. You have a whole other side of your existence with comic books. Uh, This really opened up so many avenues for you. Yeah, I, creatively promiscuous is like going to be my new tattoo. Um, I, it's funny, I 
never ever thought, oh, I'm gonna now parlay, that was the word you used, into anything. The truth was I just have, I don't know if it's a short attention span or I just have, uh, you know, I like other mediums, I just do. And, and when I started doing this, if you were a novelist, you were a thriller writer, you were supposed to forever be a thriller writer. I wanted to write my second book as like kind of a historical fiction thing. And they said, no, 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 don't do that. You're gonna ruin your career. And they had just put me on the bestseller list. So the truth was I was scared. And so I just wrote another thriller that was, you know, in the legal world. I never made that mistake again. It was to me the book that I was, the hardest book I ever to write because I wasn't writing what I wanted to do. And it was the worst reviewed book I ever got. And the, you know, one of the worst selling ones I ever did. I said, I will never ever do that again. I'm only doing what I want to do right now. Again, learned it the hard way and I watched it almost all go away. I, in fact, it did go away. Rob's uh, publishing house shut down. And I remember I watched every, the second book had tanked and I thought my whole life was disappearing right again, just like it did for my dad. And I remember calling my mom and I was telling my mom, you know, I lost, you know, publishing's down. We don't have a new deal. We lost the deal because Rob's house is shutting down. What do we do? And, you know, and my mom said to me, I'd love you if you were a garbage man. And it wasn't anything she practiced and she wasn't taking a crack at garbage man. My uncle was actually a garbage man. Um, But she was just saying, I don't care if you're the king of England or whatever you do, I love you. And I needed that at that moment. But, But back then, you know, I got offered, I'd always been hiding comic book references in my books um, since the very first book. And only the truest nerds in the country would ever find what I was doing. It would come, like one person would come up every event and be like, you like comics, huh? And I'm like, How, you know, and they, they'd see that reference that I put in just that deep cut. And DC Comics noticed it. And then my fourth book came out. The last person in line was an editor from DC Comics who said, hey, do you want to write Green Arrow for us? The director, Kevin Smith, was writing Green Arrow at the time. It was their number one superhero book. And they said, if we hire another comic book writer, everyone's going to be like, what happened to Kevin Smith, the director? And no one was working in comics. Now, I know superheroes are the big thing and Avengers and Marvel movies are the big thing. But this is, you know, back when nobody was cared about comics. The only person who didn't work in comics who wrote comics was Kevin Smith. The second person back then was me. And it wasn't cool. It just was what I loved. And I said, I'm going to go do it. I remember someone said to me, you know, you're a best-selling novelist. Why are you going to go slum in comic books? And I was like, you ass. I'm like, because they're awesome. Like, and I didn't even care. I was like, and they were like, why would you do that? I'm like, why not? It, it'll be fun. And they, and they said to me, it's our number one superhero book. If you if you succeed, you'll succeed on a big stage. If you fail, you're gonna fail in front of everyone. And I was like, you know what? I'll take those odds. I'll take that shot any day. And I started writing comics. And suddenly all these novelists, I remember I was on a panel with Janet Ivanovich and Walter Mosley, and both whispered to me like, you know, they announced it that day and, and they both, and, and they Walter Mosley leaned over to me and was like, does he still hang out with Speedy? And Janet Ivanovich was like, I wanna write Wonder Woman. And, and suddenly all, I became like the drug dealer to novelists who wanted to break in the comics. Um, and then when I wanted to do a TV show, I went to my agent was like, I got an idea for a TV show. And they were like, you know, oh, you know, novelists don't come up with TV shows. So I said, you know what, I'm leaving my, I'm, I'm leaving my agent. And I left the agency. I was this big famous agency mm. who, who did my TV and film stuff. And they said, you can't do that. So I said, fine, you're fired. And I left the agency, went to a new agency, Endeavor now WME. And I said, I want to do a TV show. They said, great, here's a TV agent for you. And he got us our show on the air. And suddenly I was doing television shows. And it, it, you know, now people can do lots of different things. But back then, I just was like, this is the idea I have. And if you don't want to do it, 
Again, it was, it was nothing more than just me being young and stubborn and just refusing to listen to anyone who said a novelist can't do that. And, and so I don't know. I don't think it's parlay. I think it's just more like I was just too stupid to take no for an answer. And my dad taught me enough that, you know, if you want something, you better chase it because otherwise the world's going to take, take you apart for it. When did you finally feel financially independent? I know for, for writing purposes, to kind of build a head of steam to write a book, you think back to that time of rejection and vulnerability. But at, at some point, you know, clearly you're jumping from agency to agency. TV studios are interested in you. You have the cylinder of comic books firing. You're a novelist. You can uh, venture into nonfiction, which you did prolifically. At what point did you kind of look around and say, I, I made it? I'm financially secure. It's fine. I will never say I made it. Never. I, as I said before, if I think I made it, I am done. I will tell you that I, to this moment, sock money away because um, I, I just, that's the only way I know how to live is like for the rainy day. Why? Because my dad did not know how to. My dad did not know how to save for the rainy day. And the rainy day would constantly hit and just was like a storm through my family. So you know, I, I, you know, I still have a very hard time saying no to things because I'm always worried that it, again, it's going to all go away. It's going to all do something. So I don't, I don't, that thought it, when you said it, I was like, wait, people think they made it. Like, who are those people? Like it, it's not in my DNA. Uh, wow. I know it's uh, cra I mean, I do think, listen, I, I, I certainly, you know, I'm happy that I, like my kid went off to college and I'm like, I feel like, okay, we can, you know, I'm happy that I don't have to stress about that. And on the financial side, like, I'm so thankful for what we have, but that comes from me just not being able, like, I still drive the same six-year-old car. Like, I know I can go buy a new one today, but that's just not how my, I don't know, it, I, I never want to lose whatever that is. And I feel like the moment I think I made it, I, I do firmly believe I'm finished. We are going to get into Heroes for My Son and Heroes for My Daughter, uh, that series, and Xavier Riddle and the Secret Museum and the I Am Benjamin Franklin and I Am Anne Frank. But I need to ask you about the inflection point of becoming a father, especially in how you reflected with your insecurities as a, as a kid hiding uh, your situation at home uh, with you know, having to put on a face at Highland Oaks or North Miami Beach High School. When did you become a dad? Tell me about how it changed your writing, how it changed the the tempo, the outlook, what you wanted to write about, how you wanted to communicate to your children. Uh, it's funny, you know, I always, um, my first book was about 20-somethings living in D.C. because I was a 20-something living in D.C. And then I got married, and my second book was about a married couple. Um, and... Uh, and then, and truthfully, my the fourth book was The Millionaires, was really about me struggling with being, I think, an adult and finally having, you know, someone was paying me money was the first time we had like a, you know, to deal with that. So I, I, I don't know whether it's just that I'm really bad at hiding what I'm dealing with in my personal life, where I just firmly believe that you should put your stuff out there. I never consciously do it. I don't go like, oh, what's happening in my life? And I'll write about it. It's just... I, I always figure out what I'm writing about and what issue I'm having when I get to the end of the book. And I remember when my mom died, I was like, wait a minute, what am I writing about? I was on the last pages of this novel I was working on. I'm like, wait, this character lost his mother. And oh crap, I'm writing about the loss of my mother. That's what this whole book is about. And, I, and books have always been a kind of free form of therapy for me. They, they let me kind of, I never consciously do it. It just, it, I can't help but seep into what I'm working on. I wish I was smart enough to kind of think big theme at the start and then, let it take me, but I don't. But I, I will, to answer your question, I became a dad. And then I started writing about that. And uh, mm. and the, the day that I became a dad 
I was driving home from the hospital and I said, on the day that I was born, I will tell you this is true, my dad went and bought a bottle of champagne and said, I'm gonna open this bottle of champagne at my son's, Brad's wedding. And when we moved down from Florida, to Florida from New York, you know, you put all your stuff in the moving van. Um, my, there's a couple of things you keep in the car that you don't give to the movers. And one of them was my mom and dad sat in the front seat when we drove to Florida. My sister and I sat in the back and behind the two headrests were two bottles of champagne that used to roll back and forth in the Florida sun. And my parents knew nothing about taking care of champagne, but we were what they cared about. And uh, when my son was born, I'm like, I don't care about champagne. I'm going to write a book for him that lasts his whole life. I'm going to fill it wow. with rules to live by. I'm going to teach him how to be a good father. And I wrote this book, you know, I told him like, love God and, and be nice to the fat kid in class. And, you know, all these rules for him to be a good person. And the book was crap. It was like telling your kid to be good and expecting them to be good. And, and now as a, as a parent, you know, I know that that's silly. And it was a friend, Simon Sinek taught me this amazing story about the Wright brothers that every time the Wright brothers would go out to fly their plane, they would bring enough extra materials for multiple crashes, which means every time they went out, they knew they would fail. And they would crash and rebuild and crash and rebuild. And that's why they took off. And I love that story. And I wanted my sons to hear that story. I wanted my daughter to hear that story. I wanted everyone to know you dream big, you work hard, you have a good side order of stubbornness. You can do anything in the world. And that night I started, you know, I started writing uh, the book that became Heroes for My Son, which was a, not a book of rules, but a book of heroes. And, uh, and then I wrote Heroes for My Daughter. And it was just one page stories of inspiration to inspire my kids. And it's funny at the time I went to my publisher and I said, I, again, I was a thriller writer. I was like, I want to write a new kind of book for kids. I said, but I don't want you to take me on just because you think I, I sell a lot of thrillers for you. I don't want you to take it on because you feel like you got to service it. I know you do that for other writers and I don't want to be that guy. So if you don't like it, don't buy the book. And the, and the head of the publishing house said, okay, Brad, we read it. We don't like the book. And I was like, what do you mean you don't like the book? It's awesome. And again, I left the publishing house. They, they rejected the book. They kicked me out. And I went to another publisher and they published the book and the book went up the bestseller list, I think to the number two spot. And everyone said how, and they had an advertising budget, Robin, of zero dollars, zero dollars in advertising. And everyone's like, how'd you get that on the bestseller list? And I said, I didn't. I said, it's just that the culture is starving for heroes right now. And, and I want that for my kids. And there are other people who want it for their kids. It's these amazing heroes that people want, not me. But that book changed my life because it let me suddenly start writing nonfiction. And, you know, again, everyone else said you can't do it. And I just found a publisher until they said yes. I am Amelia Earhart, your illustrated children book with Chris Eliopoulos, and I am Abraham Lincoln. These are fixtures at Children's Library at reading time. Uh, I think about Xavier Riddle uh, and the Secret Museum and uh, my daughter talking about Helen Keller and the empathy endlessly and the way you made that palatable, you know, across languages, across time and made it understandable for, for little kids with thousands of questions that, you know, a father can't answer. That has got to be striking to you to kind of step back, you know, not that you're going to take a victory lap with this, but you're helping parents raise their children. And we're going to get into this conversation with Ben, ben Franklin and Anne Frank, which is an essential protagonists to write about, an essential character to write about. Um, we're both Jewish. Our children uh, both hesitatingly learn about the Holocaust, and it's an exceedingly difficult thing to broach. And when I'm looking at this book, you know, you you have someone who's just so relatable to the present, uh, 
When I was born, my sister loved laughing at my big ears. I also had big eyes and the cutest smile. I like ice skating and going to the movies and getting autographs. And yet there are these jarring pictures of, of, of Nazis posting photos up, don't buy from Jews, forbidden Jews, Germans unite. These are not in any way easy things to broach with seven or eight-year-olds. Yeah, we had someone yesterday put on Twitter for us. They said, we just got I Am Am Frank. It's the most important book I've ever read to my son. And I can't possibly fathom that that's our book. And But I know one thing, I banked on one thing my entire career, which is I'm not that special. And if I want this for my kids, which is why, who I wrote it for, then there are other parents who want that same lesson for theirs. But you read the most important page in the book. It's not about the Holocaust. It's not about the two years that she spends, which you'll see all of that in the book as well. But it's seeing that she loves to play tag and that she loves to go ice skating and she loves memorizing celebrities' names. Because when I taught my daughter, it started with Amelia Earhart. When I taught my daughter, Amelia Earhart fly, flew across the Atlantic Ocean. My daughter was totally unimpressed. She said, Dad, everyone flies across the Atlantic Ocean, big deal. But when I told her the true story that Amelia Earhart, when she was seven years old, built a homemade roller coaster in her backyard, and she took a wooden crate and put roller skating wheels on it, shoved it to the roof of her tool shed, came flying down on the wooden slats, flew through the air, crashed and gets back up again. My daughter's like, tell me that part again. She loved the part where Amelia Earhart was just like her. And that moment you read of Anne Frank loving to play tag and loving to ice skate, that's the most important page because kids go, oh, she's like me. And suddenly when you see that they're, people aren't allowed to be in swimming pools or shop in the restaurants they want to go to or eat in the places they want to eat, now it's just like you. And the, that's how, to me, you know, I don't think of it as like, I'm going to create empathy, but that is where empathy is built is seeing yourself in someone else. It's the most important part of every book. We always start when they're kids. And um, there is no question when you look at where we are as a culture, you know, anti-Semitism is at a 40-year high. There was a, uh, I'm sure you saw the same stat I saw last week, a study that said millennials don't know the basic details of the Holocaust or that 6 million Jews died. Our kids need hope right now. And the best way to teach that is with I Am Am Frank. I firmly believe in her story, you know, the little girl who sits in an attic and hides from the Nazis, but still thinks people are good at heart. I need my kids to know that even in the darkest places, you can still find light because that's what hope is, right? It's, a, it's a, as it says in the book, it's a light that burns within you and nothing puts it out once you light it. And I need my kids to have that lesson. You wrote in the book and it's illustrated among you know, people in a concentration camp behind barbed wires being directed by Nazi troops. We knew what a call up really meant. The Nazis would send people to a concentration camp, a prison where Jews were locked up and made to work all day and night. There was almost nothing to eat or drink. If you went there, escape was nearly possible. And where I struggle with this is uh, any curious kid is going to ask, what next? What happened after this book? You you know, didn't take us to the horrific processing and the cattle cars and uh, the, the gas chambers and the crematoria and the parents being pried away from their children, the stuff of nightmares for kids. And you talk about the insecurity of your own childhood. And this has got to be the most difficult and essential book that you wrote for children. But I am terrified of the conversation that I have to have with my daughter at the end of this book, right? Yeah. Of the questions that are still going to come up weeks and weeks oh, afterwards. I, I, I got it last night. Her? What happened to the prisoners? Yes. No, listen, last night, my sister got the book in the mail 
uh, or wherever she bought it. She calls me last night. She read it to my six-year-old niece. And I'm like, here we go, right? Render it in real time. And let's be very clear. I don't just write these things and say, hope for the best. You know, we had a historian who used to work at the Holocaust Museum as an advisor. We had the Anne Frank Center for Hope in Atlanta came as advisors. How do we how do we talk to kids about this? What should we show? What, what should we not show? The picture in the book, you know, Chris Eliopoulos is the star of this book, our, our artist on the book, who makes sure that that page isn't terrifying, right? He doesn't show you the blood and gore, but we don't hide it either. You see the uniforms and you see things. Um, and it was important to me to kind of find that right balance. But my niece last night calls me on FaceTime and I'm like, let's see what happened. And she loved the book and didn't go straight to the horrors, you know, asked a couple of questions. And, and we are very careful about it. You can see if your kids do ask, if you look in the timeline, which isn't in the main story, it'll tell you when Anne Frank dies. It'll show you actually that part. If your kid is curious about that part, then you are the one who, have, of course, as a parent has to deal with what's next. And some kids are going to ask about it. Some kids won't. Um, but I will tell you, um, you know, I can see it in one day. Like I can see how kids react. I, the best letter that I saw was someone who said, I was terrified to read this book to my child. I bought it, but I, was t- I, I knew my eight-year-old was ready. I didn't think my five-year-old was. My wife said, sure he is. And Brad, I want you to know, as always, my wife was right. And thank you. They've been asking. We've been talking for two hours having a conversation that I was terrified about. In fact, my friend, one of our dear friends, this is a better story. When the, one, the most important thing we do in the books is it's, they're all cartoon. Uh, they look like comic books. They're kind of graphic depictions of these heroes. But the last page is always a real picture of the hero. And a friend of mine who's white, he has a, a black daughter. He, she's adopted, was reading I Am, Aunt, I Am Rosa Parks when it first came out. And I forget if she was six, seven, eight years old. And they get to the end of the book and they see the picture of Rosa Parks and his daughter looks at him who's black and says, wait, this really happened. This really happened. And he said, and suddenly he was having a full on conversation about race with his daughter, which he said to me, I should have had years ago. We're a mixed race family, but I was was terrified to have the conversation. And I can't tell you how many people have said that to me. I mean, we are so scared of explaining hard things to our kids And maybe it's because I just had the hard things explained to me when I was younger and I felt like it gave me a strength. But I feel like if we wrap our kids in bubble wrap, we do them no favors. And certainly you you don't, you shouldn't be showing your kids like bodies piled up after the Holocaust, you know, when they, when they, when the camps are liberated. But I think our kids are always more resilient than you think they are. And when you arm them with that empathy early on, those become permanent memories. That's how you build, you know, the best story in all of I Am Am Frank is this story, is her view from the window of her attic was of a chestnut tree. And the tree was all she saw. That's all she could see. And in the winter, she'd watch the leaves fall off. In the spring, she'd watch them grow back. That was her television show. That was her YouTube. And obviously, Am Frank dies. They preserved the tree in the house. It's, of course, now a museum. But in 2010, the tree, the chestnut tree got blown over. But what happened was, is they took all the seedlings, the saplings from the tree, they started planting them around the world. And now there are Anne Frank trees blooming all across the globe. And we end the book with that story for a very obvious reason. Like that's what Anne Frank's story is. And when you give it to your kids, it is planting a seed within them that blooms. So obviously you have to know your kid I'm sure there I'm going to get calls from people who are like, that was too intense for my kid or not. Read the book first. You know your child, but don't be afraid of hard conversations with your kids. I firmly believe that.
Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to New York Times bestselling author Brad Meltzer. The latest are I am Anne Frank and I am Benjamin Franklin. Uh, I would like to ask you kind of in the 10 minutes or so that we have left, uh, this is a chance for you to kind of turn it around and maybe hold the hands of, of frustrated creatives out there. We are in a pandemic. We are in a deep economic slowdown content um, you see these criticisms that it's a situation of the haves in terms of bestsellers and the have-nothings. Uh, the book industry is shrinking. Uh, TV is changing. If you're a college graduate right now or if you're a person who is maybe clutching that LSAT prep kit and wondering about the next phase, I, I don't like having debt. I'm worried about my job. I have these creative urges, and yet there's no visibility in this world, which is a, a, such a volatile and and and, you know, risk fraught world with with the pandemic what's your advice um listen i got 24 rejection letters on my first book 24 people who told me you shouldn't do this give up you're never going to make it and i don't look back on the experience and say well i was right and they were wrong and ha on them um, i firmly believe life is subjective and as i said at the start you know all it takes is one person to say yes to your work one person and your job is to find that one person. I firmly believe that whatever it is you choose to do, whether it's about law or whether it's about art or whether it's about, you know, you want to teach or whatever it might be, don't let anyone tell you no. Don't let anyone tell you no. I mean, it is it is why I sit every day and, and sorry, kiddo, sorry, kiddo, sorry, kiddo. Those things, use that as rocket fuel. And I, I again, you know, Art is harder. The world is harder. Publishing is harder. All those things are harder. But you know what's harder? Being miserable in middle age and wishing that you should have done something, you could have done something, and, and looking back and regretting it. Um, I will. I used to scoop ice cream at the Aventura Mall and uh, in North Miami Beach and at haagen And there was this woman, I actually just remembered, I think this is in my speech. I, I forgot this is in my speech, but I love this story. Is um, There was this woman who came and she was snapping her fingers at me, trying to get my attention. I said, ma'am, I'll be with you in a moment. And she started snapping her fingers again and eventually was like, you better serve me now. And I was like, ma'am, you know, you're being rude. And she said, you better serve me now. And I said, you know what, ma'am? I don't want to serve you anymore. You're just not talking nicely to any of us. Have a good day. You're not welcome here anymore. And she starts screaming at me. She says, I want to see the manager. Now, at 17 years old, I was the manager of the haagen So I turned my back to her and I turned right back. I said, okay, I'm the manager. How can I help you? She's like, you're not the manager. I said, yes, I am. She goes, you know what? You're going to be working at this miserable haagen for the rest of your miserable life. And I said, ma'am, if I'm working here for the rest of my miserable life, you're still never getting any ice cream. <laughs> and that woman used to get to me because she made me feel my insecurities of failure, you know, that I was going to be trapped in some place I could never get out of. But if I could meet that woman again today, I would thank her um, because what she's given me is, is that reason to go forward and, and, and a reason to chase that absurd dream. But I promise you, even a failed dream, and I have it, my failed dream still sits on my shelf. And I have plenty of TV ideas that never got made, more than I've ever gotten made. Um, and I'm so happy that I tried as opposed to never trying. And so I firmly believe whatever it is you're chasing, man, write it. it. You know, building a novel, writing a novel is like building a sandcastle, a grain of sand at a time. You got to do it every day. And, you know, so many people want to be writers, but they don't want to take the time to write. And that's the job. Sit in the chair, stare at the computer and put, do a page a day. You do a page a day, I promise you, you will have a book in a year. 
you will. It may not be the best book, it may need editing, but you will have a book in a year. But what most people do is they go, oh, it's Monday, I'm gonna write two pages Tuesday. You know what, I'll write three pages Wednesday, gonna be really productive, and then it's gone. But I firmly believe, as hard as it is, there is always room for something new and beautiful. It is the one rule of art from the creation of art forward. You know, whether you wanna mark it from the Renaissance or go even earlier, pick, pick your time period, there is always room for something new and bold and different. In fact, there are two women um, who I've been, I don't know if you, you know, I, I'm gonna introduce you to them because you should have them on your show. But Micah, they, they went to um, North Miami Beach Senior High School. I'm trying to think what year they were. They were probably 10 years, 20 years after us. I went back to NMB and um, their name, they're the Mulit sisters, but they, I went back to NMB and, and spoke to the school and we gave out free books to everyone at North Miami Beach Senior High School. And they wrote me a year or two ago and said, we were in the audience that day. And because of your speech, it was the first person we knew who ever wrote a, who ever wrote a novel. And, um, they, and they said, and it made us think we could write a novel and our new novel came out and can you help us? And so of course I've been mentoring them since. Their new book is called um, One of the Good Ones and it comes out in January. And they have become mentees of mine, but they're a breath, a breath of fresh air. Um, two African-American girls who are sisters and came from NMB and they just, they just got a starred review in Publishers Weekly that said, this is, these are brand new voices. There's always room for a brand new voice and a brand new way of looking at things. And I love them for that. Brad Meltzer, in the few minutes we have left with you, I have to ask you about, uh, you know, ring composition. What would they teach us in English class? Uh, how, this, how this circuitous route came back with your father when he witnessed your success and the conversation with your father about the, the genesis of your insecurities, maybe things you didn't share over the years that, listen, dad, it was, uh, it was actually crushing and very decisive in my life to see what had happened to you and I was running from that. Are you asking if I did have that conversation? Yeah. You know, it's funny. Now that you're saying, I'm like, I, I didn't know. I mean, my dad knew my story. He saw me do interviews and he knew that that was, you know, that was the big moment of my life. But I think it's funny when you, when you just said it, I heard like a negative of like, oh, isn't that bad? When I tell the story to me, it's really good because we, it, it worked out. So I think my dad always saw it. And the only way that he could see it is like, we got lucky, right? It worked. Um, so it was, moving to Florida was the scariest thing, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So I don't see it as like, and I don't know how he saw it, but he, you know, you're also, and again, you're, I'm rendering this answer in real time too. I don't think my father ever, um, he, he didn't have the self-introspection or the ability to kind of be, mm. to self-assess, to be like, Huh, like my dad was a walking id. Like if my dad made $500 that week, he spent $500. If he made $10,000 that week, he spent $10,000. Like there was no, he was missing that thing in his brain that said, I might need to stop. So that self-analysis and that, that you know, his, his favorite catchphrase was, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, I always well, worry about it. No, I just wanted to kind of take you into the, the the transition for me, which was enormously important, the the son of the father becoming the father of the son and, and all of the creativity that, that spewed forth out of that. And, you know, now you have college-age children and they're going through uh, the journey of self-discovery as well. Yeah, but my therapy sessions are all about, I mean, I was the father. Most people wait till their parents die and then you become the parent or they get sick and then you become the parent. I was the parent at 13. 
Mm-hmm. I was at 13, knew, I knew, again, I didn't know the words for it, but I was always the parent in my household because my parents were just, they were the best parents ever. They loved me like no, I firmly believe no one loved their parents like they loved me. I literally wrote it on their headstone. No one loved their parents more, no one. But they didn't know what to do to be parents. And they were, they were my dad was in many ways just, you know, he, he, he didn't know, con- he didn't know what consequences were. So I had to clean up after whatever messes he made. And so that was always a part of my life. That was just our, that was our relationship. It wasn't, uh, oh my gosh, look what this happened. And now it's happened because I wrote books. That was my life and he knew it. He always knew that I was gonna be more serious than he was. He would go in and make, you know, dirty jokes and whatever. And, and I would be the one who would be like, I'm sorry he said that, you know, <laughs> like I'd have to come in and clean it all up. And whatever financial disaster blew up, I'd be like, okay, here's what we're gonna fix it and get out of it. Well, I was just looking to uh, shoehorn you into this this killer conclusion. Look at you now in the year 2020. You are co-parenting millions of children across the planet with, I am Amelia Earhart. I am Abraham Lincoln. I am Benjamin Franklin. I am Anne Frank, Xavier Riddle. Uh, thank you, Brad Meltzer, New York Times bestselling author, for sharing your story, for sharing your vulnerability. Uh, I highly recommend everybody pick up I am Anne Frank. It is an essential read, a difficult but necessary read in this time in our history. Uh, You are always welcome on the show. I love this, and thanks for doing the homework, but more important, go Chargers. Go Chargers. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Enjoy the show on NPR One, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. And hello, Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C. We are now on WERA 96.7 FM, Sunday mornings at 11. Tune in. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.